2022, the Supreme Court overturned 50 years of precedent and abolished the constitutional right to an abortion. It's also curbed efforts to implement gun control and has limited the ability of the government to restrict carbon emissions and control pollution. Even before all that, we were thinking about putting together a show about the court. We've been trying to get our heads around what an inherently undemocratic institution means for the country and for its democracy. What does it mean for nine people, unelected and serving a life term, to hold this much power in our government? Who is the court accountable to? This is our attempt to grapple with the most mysterious branch of government. Of the nine justices on the Supreme Court, six are conservatives. Three were appointed by former President Donald Trump. How unprecedented is the new conservative supermajority really? In this episode, we look at the history of the modern Supreme Court and ask the question, how did we get here? From the Capitol News Service, I'm Hunter Savory. And I'm Kate Seltzer. This is TakeOver. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Within minutes, Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said no. Congress will wait until a newly elected president picks a Supreme Court justice. Americans are blessed to have a Neil Gorsuch a man who will likewise be a devoted servant of the law. My judicial philosophy is straightforward. A judge must be independent and must interpret the law, not make the law. Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. We are following the other major headline from Washington tonight. The Senate has now voted President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, confirmed in record time. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had already told Republicans that Democrats won't be able to do much about this for a long time to come. It's easy to think about the court's conservative supermajority in terms of Trump, but really we need to go back much further to understand how we got here. The Supreme Court wasn't born supreme. Instead, it first met in a makeshift courtroom in Lower Manhattan on February 1st, 1790. The meeting wasn't much to look at. Only two out of six justices showed up three justices shy of the quorum needed. The day was over before it had even started. And when the court reconvened the next day with enough justices to actually get things done, they found that there was no work on their docket. Unlike later courts, which we think of as being stuffed with unmatched legal minds, the early court impressed just about no one. As Peter Irons put it, of the 11 appointments George Washington made to the highest bench, one spent time in debtor's prisons for defaulting on loans, one returned his commission after five days to serve in state office. One never attended a single court session. One was impeached for political bias on the bench. One was insane, and another was seen at. So the court got off to a rocky start. And it wasn't always especially powerful. Just for a moment, and we promise we'll get to the history of the modern Supreme Court in just a minute, but we need to talk about judicial review. In the early days of the United States, the role of the Supreme Court was remarkably vague. Article 6 of the Constitution states that the Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land, but is silent on who enforces constitutional supremacy, let alone whose job it is to determine what is or is not constitutional. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the opinion that resolved the issue in 1803 in the landmark case Marbury v. Madison. Because the Constitution is law, it is up to the courts to interpret it, 
and to impose those interpretations on the other branches of government. A law repugnant to the Constitution is void, Marshall wrote. The court gets its power from the Constitution, but it gets its ability to decide what the law is from itself. Today, conservatives have a supermajority on the Supreme Court. John Malcolm, vice president of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government, argues that the court has actually been an activist liberal court from the early 1900s until very recently. Well, you, you could include the Warren Court. <laughs> uh, Dwight Eisenhower was asked when he left the office, or at least the, the apocryphal story is that he was asked this, he goes, did you ever make any mistakes when you were president of the United States? He said, yes, I made two of them, and they're both sitting on the Supreme Court. He appointed, he appointed Chief Justice Earl Warren, and he appointed William Brennan uh, to the Supreme Court. I, I mean, I think that there are a number of reasons for that. The, the biggest one is that the, the Democratic presidents have just done a better job of vetting and caring about this. Republican presidents until fairly recently just said, well, is this a smart person with good academic or professional credentials? Uh, and Or in some cases, they ran away from conservative principles by saying, oh, well, we want somebody who's going to be in favor of this side or the other, but they can't have a, a paper trail. God forbid they're going to be criticized during the confirmation process. We need to find stealth candidates. So who do you end up with when you get when you get something like that, well, you you end up with an Anthony Kennedy who was the third pick after Robert Bork uh, failed and Douglas Ginsburg withdrew his name from consideration. You then end up with David Souter who, who had been on the First Circuit for a hot minute and before that he was an obscure New Hampshire Supreme Court uh, justice. You end up with a Sandra Day O'Connor uh, who was on a mid-level, a very bright woman. Don't get me wrong, but a mid-level court in Arizona, state court no federal experience what, uh, whatsoever, certainly not a constitutional scholar. Uh, you, have, you have people who may have good professional credentials, but they have no sound grounding in either constitutional law or a basic philosophy when it comes to judging. And originalism and having the intestinal fortitude to stand behind originalism and textualism, even if it leads to a result that you personally or which society may not find very popular, takes guts. Others argue the court has been a conservative institution nearly since its founding. Here's journalist and author Adam Cohen. People have this idea of the Supreme Court that it's, uh, you know, the champion of the little people and the institution in our society that makes sure that everything is fair and right. Um, that's really never been true. Um, it wasn't true before the Civil War when the court uh, had a lot of slaveholders on it and it repeatedly upheld slavery. It wasn't true after the Civil War and the Supreme Court upheld segregation. If you're going to make the case that the court has always been conservative, that is likely to preserve the status quo, its first century of existence is probably a good place to start. It's certainly safe to say that for many years, the court consistently ruled against civil liberties. The Dred Scott decision in 1857 declared that people of African descent weren't U.S. citizens, and that Congress couldn't limit the spread of slavery. In 1896, the court ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson that segregation laws didn't violate the Constitution, and in 1927, the ruling in Buck v. Bell permitted the compulsory sterilization of disabled people. Our next stop in understanding the historical context behind today's court is with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1937. FDR had just been elected to his second term and was intent on lifting the country out of the Great Depression through a series of economic reforms. 
present situation of our people impel. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Until the 1930s, the Supreme Court was uh, a very conservative body. That's Peter Irons, a civil rights lawyer and professor emeritus of constitutional law from UC San Diego. He's the one who, at the top of the show, we quoted talking about the drunk and senile Supreme Court justices. In fact, virtually every justice who had been appointed since the very beginning uh, was a uh, member of the president's party. They were usually party loyalists, and they were very conservative. At the time FDR was pushing through New Deal reforms, many of the Supreme Court justices had been lawyers for businesses, banks, and railroads. And four of them, Justices Sutherland, Butler, McReynolds, and Van Devanter, who came to be known as the Four Horsemen, were reliably conservative enough to expect their votes to be against New Deal reforms. So in reaction to these reactionary Supreme Court decisions, uh, President Roosevelt proposed that the Supreme Court be expanded uh, to a maximum of 15 justices. But this wouldn't be just placing six new justices along with the nine on the court, known as the nine old men. Roosevelt's proposal worked like this. If a justice declined to retire within six months of his 70th birthday, the president could nominate an additional justice. Critics warned that the court packing would result in the appointment of judicial puppets who would serve at the pleasure of the president. Those opposing this plan have sought to arouse prejudice and fear by crying that I am seeking to pack the Supreme Court and that a baneful precedent will be established. But if by that phrase the charge is made that I would appoint and the Senate would confirm justices worthy to sit beside present members of the court who understand modern conditions, that I will appoint justices who will not undertake to override the judgment of the Congress on legislative policy, that I will appoint justices who will act as justices and not as legislators, if the appointment of such justices can be called packing the court, then I say that I, and with me the vast majority of the American people, favor doing just that thing now. As it happens, the vast majority of American people were not in favor of doing that, and Congress was especially opposed. So the plan failed. Now, what happened was that there was a lot of uh, negative reaction to this, even from members of President Roosevelt's own party. And the what was called the court packing plan uh, never got uh, passed through Congress. What happened, though, was that some of the older, more reactionary justices got the message that they were way out of step with the American people and the Congress. So FDR loses the battle, but he sort of wins the war. First Justice Owen Roberts begins voting more consistently with the more liberal justices to save New Deal legislation. And FDR winds up outlasting, and appointing replacements for, seven of the nine justices who sat on the bench in 1937. There's another key moment in the court's history we should talk about. There's this brief moment where the court takes a turn. 
The appointment of California Governor Earl Warren as Chief Justice in 1953 set the court on a radically new path. Here's Adam Cohen again. He was chosen by um, Eisenhower, who did not think he'd be a great liberal. Warren was a pretty moderate Republican governor. But Warren comes in, and one of the first things he does is he organizes the court to uh, uh, issue the ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, huge big deal, obviously, striking down segregation in all public schools in the country, um, although it takes a while to implement. But that is actually not uh, a single act. It becomes the start of what came to be known as the Warren Court, where we had a liberal majority that began doing a lot of things, um, a lot of things for groups that really the court had never cared much about before. Famously, the Warren Court decided on the landmark cases Brown v. Board of Education, which integrated schools, and Loving v. Virginia, which legalized interracial marriage. But it wasn't just race. Um, they embraced poor people in a way that the court had never done before. The court really had never looked out for poor people, didn't consider them a group worth protecting. Suddenly, the Warren Court issues a series of rulings, many of them around the right to welfare, that really take the rights of poor people seriously. And in other areas, rights to religion, rights uh, of speech. The Warren Court also granted the right to remain silent in Miranda v. Arizona, the right to counsel in Gideon v. Wainwright, and the right to privacy in Griswold v. Connecticut. The court really changes uh, really the idea of what the Supreme Court is and for that brief moment became what we often think of the Supreme Court as, as the champion of the disadvantaged, as the, the one institution in society that makes the country fairer. Conservatives weren't simply going to allow the most liberal court in American history to go on unchecked. Warren was a lightning rod for conservatives in the far right. Bumper stickers and billboards saying impeach Earl Warren were part of the landscape in the 1960s. In fact, President Richard Nixon actively campaigned on ending the Warren court. He was able to appoint four justices in just three years. The Warren Court had been going along for, for quite a while um, uh, towards the end of the Johnson administration. Um, uh, Warren actually, Chief Justice Earl Warren, goes to talk to uh, President Johnson, very unusual, but they both are concerned that Nixon might win the 1968 election. And they engineer a plan where Warren is going to step down and be replaced by another liberal Chief Justice who the plan is will keep the court on its progressive path. That falls apart disastrously. The Senate rejects the man that they, uh, that they chose, uh, Abe Fortas, and suddenly Nixon is in fact elected, and just in part by a cruel twist of fate, there are a lot of openings in a very short period of time. So Nixon is actually able to appoint four justices to the court in just three years. And Nixon had said all along when he was running for office, he was going to end the Warren court. He was going to end the liberal court. And he did that. He chose very conservative people, including a new conservative chief justice, uh, Warren Burger. And suddenly, after years of a progressive Warren court, we have the Burger court. Irons and Cohen argue that in many ways, the Supreme Court we see today is a continuation of the court of the last 50 years. And from that point on, the Supreme Court uh, went back to the old days of being extremely conservative. They didn't outright repeal or overrule the major decisions of the Warren Court. What they did was to start cutting them down, snip, 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 one at a time, pushing them back um, and making it more difficult for people to challenge actions of the government that affected them negatively. And what's really remarkable is 
after Nixon stacked the court and created what the press at the time called the Nixon court. Since that time in the early 1970s, um, we have had that same court for 50 years. Um, obviously, the individual members of the court have changed, but in all of that time, we've only had conservative chief justices. You know, we had Warren Berger, we had William Rehnquist, we have John Roberts now, and they've always had a majority behind them. And that's really striking when you think about the other two branches of government, right? We've had liberal presidents since then. We've had conservative presidents. We've had Republicans controlling both houses of, of Congress or Democrats controlling both houses or splits in the Congress. Um, in all that time, as the pendulum has as it should in a democracy, swung back and forth and you know been responsive to the voters. That has not happened on the court. We've had 50 years of conservative justices. That's not to say that the courts of the past, notably the Burger Court and the Rehnquist Court, were totally conservative. Now, under the uh, Burger Court, there were some uh, notable decisions that upheld um, the rights of people, particularly minorities. Uh, the court did not, of course, strike down Bo Brown versus Board of Education, although it pushed it way back um, so that it became difficult to challenge what in effect became the resegregation of American schools, particularly in large cities where black students uh, outnumbered greatly the white students who were left after white flight from the major cities into the suburbs. All, during these years, our idea of what a conservative is has really changed. I mean, back in the day, you know, people thought Sandra Day O'Connor was a conservative, and she was. I mean, she was a Republican, and she thought of herself as a conservative. But um, on issues like affirmative action, she would come in and be the moderate vote in the middle that actually made sure we didn't strike down affirmative action nationally. On Roe v. Wade, she was never, you know, a big pro-choice person or even a big feminist, but she really didn't have it in her heart to strike down Roe v. Wade, and when she was on the court, we didn't. And there were liberal justices on the court. Uh, William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall stayed on the court until the 1990s. But after their departure, um, the court really was the branch of government that said, no, if you want to enact laws, whether they're state or local or federal laws, that we think violate the Constitution as it was originally intended to be interpreted, we will strike them down. Well, that gives the court carte blanche, really, to, um, to act as a super legislature. So from the 70s to the early 2000s, liberals thought the court was too conservative. On the other hand, conservatives thought the court was not nearly conservative enough. So crucially, uh, the nominee of David Souter by George H.W. Bush, even by during his nomination uh, confirmation hearings, people start to be like, oh man, this might be a mistake. That's Calvin Terbeek, a lecturer in political science at Johns Hopkins University. And then he starts ruling, especially from his second year on the bench on, in ways that are, I would say, Eisenhower Republican uh, in some ways. I mean, it, it, what became, it was this was liberal by uh, judicial ideology standards in the 1990s. But, uh, and so, to, so it be, this becomes a really, it becomes a rally cry. 
Like, we can't make mistakes like this. Uh, we should have had Bork on the court. Uh, we should have been able to tur- overturn Roe and Planned Parenthood and Casey. Um, and we, and uh, there's a lot of cultural losses in the 1990s. Um, the court does not, it's still protecting a version of separation of church and state. It's recognizing uh, gay rights for the first time in 1996. It tells VMI that it has to drop its all-male program uh, in 95 or 96. And so it, it becomes really apparent. In the 1990s, people, liberal law professors and liberals in general, are like, man, this court is so conservative. From the federal society perspective and from conservatives writ large perspective, they see it as, man, we're just losing all the time. Um, so this David, David Souter nomination comes to be a rallying cry. So here we are. How do we understand the court's role today in our democracy? Do we think about it as a partisan institution, committed to advancing explicitly Republican policy goals? As a conservative but independent institution, inclined to preserve the constitutional status quo? Is the court today a continuation or a significant deviation from its predecessors? We'll explore those questions more in future episodes. For now, one thing that is for sure different about this iteration of the court is that there is no swing vote. Here's Marcia Coyle, chief Washington correspondent for the National Law Journal. For at least 40 years, and maybe even longer, there's always been on the court someone who acted as the center, someone who could be unpredictable at times and uh, might go left, might go right. Um, and that we saw probably, you know, in most people's memories would have been Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, but even predating her, there was a center of the court. Uh, after Justice O'Connor, there was Justice Kennedy. And when Justice Kennedy left, uh, Justice Elena Kagan said something very interesting at the time. Starting with Justice O'Connor and, um, and continuing with Justice Kennedy, there has been a person who people who found the center or people couldn't predict in that sort of way. It's not so clear that, uh, you know, I think going forward, uh, uh, that sort of middle position, uh, you know, it's not so clear whether we'll have it. Kagan was worried about there not being a swing justice in 2018. Today, that center is fully gone. But with the departure of Justice Kennedy, we really don't have a center of the court anymore. Uh, And some people say, well, the Chief Justice John Roberts He's more moderately conservative, so he could be the center. Uh, Maybe Brett Kavanaugh could be the center. But I I think both of them are very conservative, and they don't have the dynamic on the court that allowed Kennedy and O'Connor to be a center. Uh, There isn't that much distance between, ideologically, between Roberts and Kavanaugh and Kavanaugh and Alito and Thomas. So uh, the court doesn't have a center. And I don't think we had to wait two to three terms. I think we began to see that last term. And uh, I think that's why the court also uh, has seen a a plunge in its approval ratings with the general public. I think it's very dangerous, to be honest with you. Uh, The court clearly uh, was anti-majoritarian when it came to abortion. 
and even when it came to guns. And uh, I think the court only has the willingness of the American public to accept its rulings in order for it to survive, uh, in order for the rule of law to survive, actually. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Hunter Savory. And by me, Kate Seltzer. Our editor is Jim Carroll. Special thanks to the Capital News Service DC Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at TakeoverPodCNS and listen at cnsmaryland.org or on Spotify, Apple Music, or Google Podcasts.